Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would please, to uh, Matthew chapter 2. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I told the, uh, the early group this morning as we look at a story about the wise men traveling to Bethlehem. It reminds me of where I was about this time last year as uh, we were in Bethlehem just right after Christmas and uh, remember seeing all the beautiful Christmas decorations around Bethlehem and we stayed there at the uh, Mount David Hotel on Manger Street and uh, the city was just decorated beautifully and I think our room was on the seventh floor and I looked out the big uh, sliding window and there was a, a service catwalk that went around the building on our floor so I jumped out the window that night with, and landed down on the catwalk with my camera and went around uh, taking pictures of the city of Bethlehem uh, at night. And uh, I couldn't help but think about that this week and this morning as I was preparing uh, this message on the wise men uh, making their journey to Bethlehem. Uh, let's read about it this morning. Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and caught, killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray together. Lord, it it astounds us as we see all of the characters in the Christmas story. And Lord, we see snapshots of exactly how people are today. The names are different. The circumstances are different. The motives are different. But much the same responses. Lord, this Christmas season, I pray that we would be like the wise men who hunger and thirst after Jesus. Knowing that your word tells us that if we seek after you with all of our hearts, we'll find you. God, help us to be a testimony this Christmas season to those who need to find you. That we would be a witness. Lord, forgive us oftentimes for our indifference. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with worship and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to read a story to you this morning, an Old Testament story out of the book of Kings. 1 Kings chapter 10, and then I'll explain my reason for doing this. In 1 Kings chapter 10, the Bible says, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and with my own eyes I've seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. Now folks, the reason I read that story is because here was a Gentile ruler, the queen of Sheba. And she has come to visit Solomon. Now, who was Solomon? Solomon was the the son of King David. And as R.T. France uh, says in his commentary on the book of Matthew, we need to understand the connection here to this story. What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about the Messiah? Well, the scripture says, as far as his human lineage, he will be the son of David. 
Interestingly enough, just as a Gentile ruler came to see Solomon when he was made king, Matthew 2 tells us that these Gentile wise men, kingmakers, rulers in their own right, came to see the one prophesied about who is the true son of David. Now folks, there's no mistake about it. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the true son of David, the king of kings and lord of lords. And he's painting very clearly for us this picture that begins in Matthew 1 with the genealogy of Jesus and he continues showing us this through chapter 2. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the rightful king. He is Lord of lords, king of kings, and as such, he is worthy of our worship. In chapter 2, we see the magi, the kingmakers, as they were commonly thought of. They're coming not to make Jesus king because God has done that, but yet they're coming to recognize his kingship. His lordship. They're coming to recognize that and present themselves in worship to him. And present to him the best that they are and the best that they have. We also see Herod the illegitimate king. And he is seeking to kill the true king. And so we need to see that contrast. And then furthermore, we need to see the religious leaders. As we look at the religious leaders in this story, it's almost as though they could care less what is going on. They know all the answers, but they don't seem to be the least bit curious how everything is going to play out in this story. They give the information and that's all they do. They don't go themselves. And so it's very interesting all the dynamics that are playing out in this particular narrative. The same reactions people have to Jesus today are presented right here for us in in Matthew chapter 2. Anytime that Jesus Christ is the subject matter, there will be those like Herod who are opposed to the message of Christ. Then there'll be those who are like the religious leaders who are completely indifferent. And then there will be those who will worship Christ and they will be changed forevermore. It's kind of like Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's really nothing new under the sun. Now let's take a moment and set the context as far as the time frame is concerned. Look again at verse 1 and 2, what's going on here. The events of these two verses probably occurred sometime after Jesus was born, maybe as long as close to two years. Now why do I say that? Because as we read the narrative and we get down to verse 11, we see that that Mary and Jesus and Joseph are no longer in the stable or a cave as it might have been, but they are now where? They're in a house. And then we read on and we learn about Herod. When Herod learns that he's been tricked by the wise men, he sends his soldiers to go to Bethlehem and kill all the male children that are two years of age and younger. And so what's the implication in all of that? The implication in all of that is that there's been a passage of time. 
After all, if you see a star in the sky and you start walking toward that star, you don't necessarily get there in the next four or five hours, do you? Now, I know for some of you, I've just blown your nativity sets at home, right? You're going to go home and feel like you need to remove some of the characters, the wise men, out of the nativity set. That's not my purpose. But again, what I want you to see this morning is the different responses to news of Jesus Christ. First of all, I want you to see with me this morning that there's opposition to Jesus Christ. And Herod provides the image here. Herod is a snapshot of those down through history who remain in opposition to Christ. Now who exactly is this particular Herod? As I've shared with you recently, there were a number of Herods uh, in biblical days. So which Herod is this? Well, this is the Herod that was known as Herod the Great. Julius Caesar had appointed his father Antipater as the governor of Judea. And Antipater then managed to have his son Herod appointed the prefect of Galilee. And then in 40 AD, Herod, uh, 40 BC rather, Herod went to Rome and he was declared by Octavian and Antony to be the king of the Jews. He invaded Israel the next year. And after several years of fighting, he drove out the Parthians and established his kingdom. Now Herod wasn't a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. And you'll remember from Old Testament history, the Jews and the Edomites didn't get along. They despised one another. Because Edom wouldn't help Israel when they were going through the wilderness. Herod was an Edomite and would have naturally been despised by the Jews. But now he's the ruler over them. To make his leadership a little bit more palatable to the Jews, he took a wife of the Jews. Her name was Miriam. Now Miriam was a descendant of the famous family of the Maccabees. The Maccabean revolt when Syria was in charge over, over the Jews. Antiochus IV Epiphanes came in and defiled the temple. Sacrificed a pig on the altar there uh, in, in, in the temple there in Jerusalem. And committed what is known as the abomination that causes desolation. That the Antichrist in the future is going to do something like that again. But when Antiochus did that, Judas Maccabeus and his family, they rose up, they rallied the Jewish people and they went to war against the Syrians and they defeated them and they reestablished the Jewish faith in the land. The Maccabees were heroes among the Jews. Well, Miriam was descended from the Maccabees. And so Herod, even though he's an Edomite, he takes Miriam to be his wife again to, to make his own stock rise. But he was such a wicked and a cruel man. He was, he was paranoid about his reign. Anybody that he perceived threatened him, he would, he would torture them and kill them. In fact, his wife's brother was Aristobulus, the high priest. He had Aristobulus murdered. And then Herod, through this lavish funeral for Aristobulus, he attended that funeral and he pretended to weep his eyes out. 
Then he had Miriam, his wife, killed. And some say she was his favorite wife. Could you imagine if you weren't his favorite? But he had Miriam killed. And then he turned around and he had Miriam's mom, his mother-in-law killed. No mother-in-law jokes here though. But he, but he had her killed. And then on top of that, he murdered two of his sons. And then five days before he died, he killed his third son. And then Herod rounded up. He knew he was about to die because he had been a sick man for a long time. Not only mentally, of course, but physically. He was a sick man. He, he fought disease and, and he suffered horribly in, 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 his, in his physical life. He knew he was about to die. And, and he knew that when he died, nobody in Jerusalem would be sad. In fact, they'd be rejoicing. And he wanted there to be tears at his death. And so he rounded up all the prominent citizens of the city... He had them put in jail and then he gave the command that the moment he died all of them would be murdered so that there would be weeping and sorrow in Jerusalem when he died. That's the kind of man Herod was. A wicked man. And again he was insanely paranoid about his leadership. He was jealous when it came to his power, he tolerated no rivals or anyone who could even be thought of as a potential rival. Now that explains, I hope, why he was so opposed, so hostile to any news of Jesus Christ. The one who the wise men were calling the king of the Jews. He didn't want to hear talk about king of the Jews. He was the king of the Jews, he thought. So he was opposed. Now folks, isn't that a lot like people are today? This same type of opposition. I know the circumstances and the motives are different. But there are people today that they are absolutely determined. They are, they are not going to tolerate any conversation about Jesus Christ. They don't even want to hear about him. They're not going to bow the knee to Jesus. They're not going to share the rule of their life with anybody. It makes me think of what John wrote in John 1.5 that the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it. The word comprehend there means to overcome. The light shines and that there, there are many like Herod who try their best to overcome it. But they can't. Jesus wins. Folks, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know the end of the story. Uh, the Bible says in Philippians 2, Paul writes that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself in the incarnation and then he went to the cross and he died. But the scripture there goes on to say that God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The darkness cannot overcome the news of the birth of Jesus. Herod tried. A lot of people try today. All around us there are folks opposed to the Christmas message. They don't like anything with the name Christ in it. And they fight not only so that they don't have to believe, but they seem to take offense that you believe. They want to try to keep you from expressing your faith. And then they want to claim they're 
intolerant. Strange days that we're living in. But folks, what does the Bible say about people like Herod and people all around us that we see today that are hostile to news of Jesus Christ? The scripture says of them, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And there's one day they're going to have to stand before him. And one way or another, they're going to have to bow the knee and confess. Can you, can you imagine what it must have been like for Herod when he died? And he had to go before the judgment seat of Christ. Well, not only hostility to Christ or opposition to Christ, but the second thing I want you to notice this morning is there is indifference to Jesus Christ. And by that, what I, who I want us to look at now is, are the chief priests that are talked about here. And I want you to understand who the chief priests were. I want you to get in your mind an image of what a large group this was. He's not just talking about two or three people here. Among the chief priests, there would have been the high priest. Now, according to the Old Testament, there was only supposed to be one high priest living at a time. And his biggest responsibility every year among all his responsibilities, he was the one who would take the sacrifice, go into the Holy of Holies, and there at the mercy seat, offer the sacrifice. He would represent the Jewish people before God in the Holy of Holies. Only he could go in there. Well, the high priest, by the time we get to the, to the day of the Lord Jesus, the, the office of high priest had become subject to political favoritism and even purchase. High priests were appointed and removed at the whim of various rulers and consequently uh, there were often several living at one time. Now, there's also the ruling high priest. Uh, he, he would have presided over the Sanhedrin, a type of combined senate and supreme court. Another uh, of the chief priests would have been the captain of the temple. He had the responsibility of keeping peace on the temple grounds. And so he was given a large temple guard. It was like the temple police. Then you had the guy who acted as the temple treasurer. And finally among the chief priests, you had all of those that were supervisors over all of the rest of the priest. So you have a pretty sizable group here. Now generally they were Sadducees as opposed to Pharisees. By the time of Jesus, they'd become a little bit, just a little more than a group of corrupt religious oriented politicians. Then we see the scribes mentioned here. They were primarily Pharisees. They were the ones in charge of communicating the scripture and the oral traditions of the Jews. They were experts in the law. Now generally speaking they were very conservative but they also became very legalistic. Now the, the Pharisees among, I mean the Sadducees among them were very liberal. They denied basic doctrines. They didn't even believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. And So these groups fought among themselves all the time. And again, what I want you to see is it's a pretty sizable group that's being mentioned here. 
And Herod summons this group together and the Bible says here that Herod in all Jerusalem was troubled. In other words, this was the gossip on the streets. The wise men, the kingmakers from the east coming to town had caused quite a stir. Now the striking thing to me is that here are these magi from the east and here is Herod. He calls together a council of the chief priests and the scribes so as to inquire about the location where the Messiah is to be born and nobody but the Magi goes to investigate. Uh, Again, you can't say that Herod kept his reasoning a secret from the religious leaders because it says all of Jerusalem was troubled. Why were they troubled instead of excited? Because they knew by now what Herod did to people when his throne was threatened. And so in their minds it was likely that a lot of people were about to to suffer and die. But here's the chief priest and the scribes and they know all the answers. And all the people who are troubled, they, they all seem to know all the answers. But nobody cares. Nobody seems curious. Nobody goes to investigate. Herod doesn't send a team with the wise men because he thinks he has them all duped. They know where the Messiah is to be born, but they don't even venture out of town to see. Now folks, I don't know about you, but I find find that astonishing. Why did nobody seem to care? I think by this time they were just indifferent. They were apathetic. And there are people like that around us today who know all of the answers. They just don't care. They are people who are all too familiar with the Christmas story. But all it seems to produce is a collective yawn. They know the Bible. They know what the Bible says about Jesus. They know what it says about salvation. Sometimes you might even find them in church. They can be religious folks like these religious leaders here. But life is good. They like things the way they are why upset the apple cart just be religious put in the appearance of religion and go on and do your own thing folks you think we have people like this around us today you bet we do they just don't want to be bothered they don't want to be inconvenienced they don't want news of a Savior who is intended to change their life. Because you see, the Bible says in coming to Christ, you and I are supposed to die to ourselves and die to our agenda. There are people who want to be religious, but they don't want to talk about dying to themselves. They're like these religious leaders. I got a book recently by Dr. James White of Mecklenburg Community Church, The Rise of the Nuns. He's not talking about Catholic nuns. He's talking about nuns like nothing, the rise of the nothings. And and he's sharing with us information, statistical information in that book uh, uh, about the younger generations who are just now coming into young adulthood and those who are following them. And it's very disturbing what is going on among the the, uh, nuns. A, A huge segment of our population and about 40% of all of them are totally indifferent to religion. They're not against it. They're just not for it either. They don't want to be bothered by it. 
They just don't want to be bothered by it. And as James White points out, it's quite disturbing as you look at what's going on across the landscape of America. They're becoming a huge segment of our society today. They will be the ones who are the leaders of tomorrow. And Christianity is not even on their radar. They're not even thinking about it. Reminds me of what Jesus said in Revelation 3. Of course, the difference in Revelation 3, Jesus is talking to those who identify with the church. He addresses the church at Laodicea. And remember what he said about the church at Laodicea? What was their problem? They were neither cold nor hot. They were indifferent. They were lukewarm. They said, we're we're rich, we've become wealthy, we have need of nothing. And he said, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And, And I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. What were they saying about themselves? We don't need anything. We're comfortable. We don't need God. We're indifferent. What do we need, what do we need with all that stuff? And Jesus said, you don't realize that you're poor and blind and naked. Indifference. Folks, probably more than any other group, as we look at all the characters around the, uh, around the, 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 the Christmas story, the religious leaders who are totally indifferent, they don't even go to investigate, it's like they don't care. To me, they represent the biggest group on planet Earth today. People who know the answers but just don't seem to care. I hope that doesn't describe anybody in here this morning. I hope you're not indifferent and apathetic when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, when it comes to all the darkness out there and the need that people have uh, of coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Remember what, what Paul said about his countrymen? He was moved to tears. He wept over his, his Jewish brethren because they had all this knowledge. They knew all the answers and yet they were lost. They were indifferent to news about the Messiah. It also makes me think of another story that Jesus told. It has very much to do with this same crowd, this same indifferent crowd. Jesus was invited to a Pharisee's home, a leading Pharisee through a big banquet. And he sat there and he watched how everybody came in and they jockeyed for the most important seats. And Jesus said, don't do that. When you're invited, you take the lowly seat. Be willing to be the last of all. And one of those sitting at the table there said, Blessed is he who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. His assumption was, hey, we're the leaders, we're the religious crowd. We'll all be in the kingdom of God. And Jesus told a story that illustrated just the opposite. He told a story about a a master who said, Go out into the highways, I'm throwing a big banquet and invite people to come in. And some said, I can't come because I've just got married. I've married a wife. 
Others said, I've just bought some land and I'm going to go take a look at that and, and, and get encumbered and all that. Others said, I've bought uh, uh, oxen and I'm going to go test them out. And, 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 and the, the master said in that story, he told his servant to go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be full. For I tell you that none of those invited to the banquet will be there. Wow. Let it sink in what Jesus was saying that day. Again, this was the religious crowd who assumed that they were in the kingdom and Jesus was actually telling them the very opposite. They weren't in the kingdom at all. They were standing on the outside because they were indifferent to any news about his arrival. The Messiah was in their midst. He was doing all of his miracles. He was showing them who he was. He was presenting every evidence that they needed to know that he was the son of the living God. And yet they simply did not care. And Jesus said the harlots and the publicans are getting into the kingdom of head of you. The Gentiles are getting into the kingdom of head of you. It's like John 1 that he came to his own and his own received him not. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. What's the New Testament saying, folks? It's pointing out that indifference is dangerous. These religious leaders that Herod assembled together, I tell you what, folks, they are on dangerous ground. They don't even go to investigate. They don't care. They don't want to be inconvenienced. Could I be speaking to somebody like that this morning again? You love the thought periodically of religious exercise, but news of a Messiah who's intended to change your life? You've got to be born again. You've got to be born from above. You've got to be changed from the inside out. You've got to become a totally new creation where you die to yourself. Maybe you don't like news of that. But that's exactly what the Bible says is involved in being a Christian. Don't be indifferent to Jesus Christ. And then the third crowd here is those, those who worship. There's worship of Jesus Christ. Thinking here, of course, of the wise men. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise. But that doesn't mean that there are no mighty or noble. Because again, these wise men, they were the mighty and noble ones of their day. And what are they doing? They're coming to worship Christ. They're seeking after Jesus. In Luke's gospel, we have the shepherds. They were the nobodies. They were the lowly men of that day. In Matthew, we see the wise men seeking Him. They were the nobility. And that shows us that Jesus is the Savior of the world. 
for the rich, the poor, the black, the white, the red, the yellow. Jesus is intended to be the Savior of all men. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Here these mighty magi come to to find Jesus. They're looking for Jesus. Now there's a lot of speculation in this text and it begins right here. Who were the magi? Well the word here is plural, magi. They were the great or the powerful ones as the word literally means. They first appear in history back in the 7th century B.C. as a tribe within the nation of the Medes. They're in eastern Mesopotamia. It it may also be that just like Abraham, the Magi came from, from ancient Ur of Chaldea. Now the name Magi soon came to be associated strictly with the priesthood within that tribe and they became very skilled in astronomy and astrology. They were involved in various occult practices including sorcery and and they were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it's from their title, from their name that we get our words magic and magician. Now because of their combined knowledge of science, agriculture, mathematics, history, and the occult, their religious and political influence continued to grow until they became the most prominent and powerful group of advisors in the Medo-Persian Empire. And also before that, the Babylonian Empire. They were oftentimes referred to as the wise men. Now folks, no Persian was ever able to become king without mastering the disciplines of the Magi, and then being crowned by the Magi. They became known as the kingmakers. Now where in the world would they have learned about a Jewish Messiah? Well, scholars believe they learned from Daniel. Remember what happened in 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar came into to Judea and Jerusalem and carried the, the people of the southern kingdom off into Babylonian exile? Who was among those exiles? Daniel. And who did Daniel become? Remember, Daniel was gifted by God With wisdom and by interpreting dreams. And he interpreted that dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And what did Nebuchadnezzar turn around and do? Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel head over the magi. The wise men. And so no doubt Daniel who was a prophet and told about the future and the coming of a Messiah, no doubt they learned about the coming of Jesus from Daniel. And Daniel had probably shown them things to look for. Another point of curiosity in the text is the star. Some say it was a comet, Halley's Comet. Origin of Alexandria, church father, he believed that. Uh, Johannes Kepler, the father of modern astronomy, explained it as a conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces in the year 7 BC. But folks, I don't think any of those answers are adequate. This was a miraculous thing that happened here. 
this star that appeared. This was nothing short of the Shekinah glory of God. Remember the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament that led the children of Israel through the wilderness? This was much like that. Because a star wouldn't appear and lead you and then stop and then disappear and reappear right over a house. A star or constellation or something wouldn't act that way. This is a miracle of God. God is showing the Magi that the one that they have been looking for has finally arrived. And Matthew wants us to see that these mighty Gentiles have come from the east to find the Messiah. He came to his own and his own received him not. But these rulers, these kingmakers, Gentiles, who've been outside of Israel's fold, yet they are coming to find the Messiah and they are coming to worship when his own people won't. Folks, it, it's, it's astounding what's going on here. And when they come to worship, we see their humility. I mean, these were the important guys that everybody back home went to for wisdom. And what are they doing? They're going to seek after the one who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they're bending the knee before Him. Humility. Utter humility. And I want you to notice what they do when they get there. They present their gifts. They present gold. Gold was an appropriate gift for Christ. Gold is the medal of kings. When gold was presented to Jesus by, by, by these men of, of Persia, it was an acknowledgement of who he was. According to Seneca, the distinguished Roman orator and writer, it was the custom in Persia that nobody could approach a king without a gift and that gold, the king of metals, was the proper gift of men to a king. By the way, we find that all the time in archaeology, don't we? When a tomb is uncovered and, and the tomb is laden with gold, archaeologists know that the person there was probably a king. They present gold to Jesus. Not only gold recognizing his kingship, but also frankincense. Frankincense, by the way, was an incense that was used in worship. It would be mixed with offerings. One offering it would not be mixed with was sin offerings. Other offerings besides sin offerings, yes. Sin offerings, no. Interesting they bring incense to the one whose life will be without sin. And it shows that, that Jesus, incense, worship that he is our high priest. And then the gift of myrrh. What a strange gift to bring at the birth of a baby. Because myrrh was an embalming oil. How symbolic that this one born king of the Jews was destined to die. 
William Barclay says it well. He says, gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for one that, that was to die. These were the gifts of the wise men. And even at the cradle of Christ, they foretold that he was to be the true king, the perfect high priest, and in the end, the supreme savior of men. But folks, don't miss the point. Again, the point of the Christmas story in Matthew 2 different responses who are you and I to be like who are you and I to be like hopefully the wise men the wise men we need to come to Jesus humbly presenting all that we are and all that we have to him Think of your gold, and I'm not talking about money, but just the best you are and the best you have. Jesus deserves our best, and we are to come and present ourselves to Him and give Him our gold, all that we are. And our frankincense, our worship. Paul says in Romans 12:1 that the surrendering of yourself to him as a living sacrifice is to be your act of worship. Give him your life, give him your worship. And then myrrh reminds us of death. Our sin brings death. He came because the wages of sin is death. He came to die in my place, in your place, that we might go from death to eternal life. And then the Bible says we are to die to ourselves and pick up our cross and follow after Him. This Christmas, that's the worthy gifts that we give to Him, or should give to Him. Like the Magi. We hunger and thirst after Him. We come to Him. We humble ourselves before Him. And we give Him our best. We give Him our worship. We give Him our life. No other response is worthy of the one born to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we do thank you for these characters around the manger and then at the house, the home of Jesus. Lord, forgive us that all around us today there are those opposed to you, they're hostile to you, they're haters. The Bible talks about those who have a clenched fist toward God. Lord, we know too often times, even among the religious, there are those who are just ho-hum, indifferent. And then there are those who pay homage, who worship. God, may we be in that group. May we give you our best. I pray for that one this morning who perhaps needs to come to Christ. 
They've never surrendered their life to Him. They've never been born again. God, I pray that Your Spirit would do in their heart right now, this very day, what only You can do, that they would be born again. Lord, that those who have made that decision, that we would evaluate the way we're living our lives. Are we giving Christ our best? Or have we slid into that ho-hum group, that indifferent group? God, awaken us out of our indifference. Lord, do your work in our hearts. We do celebrate that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You're worthy of our worship and I pray God that that message would overshadow any other message that's out there at Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray.